Um, a lot of times when you read Jonah, it feels like it's just a children's story. You know, the, the whale and, and uh, uh, you went the wrong direction, go where I tell you. And, and we sort of reduce it to obedience and, and, and that's fine. It, it, that, that's, that's part of the message of Jonah. But sometimes we miss what incredible, uh, exquisite structure there are in some of these books, uh, in the minor prophets especially. And I thought Keller did a really good job of helping us to watch the movements through where he said the, the first section is how Jonah interacted with God's word. So in chapter one, God's word comes to Jonah. Chapter one, verse two, the message to be conveyed. Verse three, his response. Then over here in chapter three, what we're doing tonight, God's word came to Jonah. It's like God, God is not uh, relaxing. He said, I've still got a job for somebody to do. Uh, just because Jonah's having this faith crisis, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a mission that he once carried out. And so he came back to Jonah, but see the pattern. His word came to Jonah. Here's the message. Here's Jonah's response. And then the, the other theme is how Jonah interacted with the world. The word of warning in chapter one and in chapter three, the response of the pagans. In chapter one, it was the sailors. In chapter three, it was the Ninevites, the response of the pagan leader, the ship's captain, uh, the response of the pagan leader, the, the king, or, or more correctly translated, the mayor of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was not the capital of Assyria, so he wasn't a king. He would have been a, a governor or a mayor or some kind of local official. Uh, verse 7, one chapter 1, verse 7, how the pagans' response was ultimately better than Jonah's. How the, the, the listeners uh, took to heart the message better than the preacher. That's not unusual in any setting, present company included. Chapter 3, verse 7, how the pagans' response was ultimately better than Jonah's. And then how Jonah interacted with God's grace. Chapter two, verses one through 10, God taught grace to Jonah through the fish. And next week in uh, chapter four, how Jonah was uh, taught grace through the plant. So the structure is really um, I, 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 exquisite. It's just, it's, it's so well done. Uh, Old Testament prophet, uh, we don't know when exactly the book was written. We knew that it happened. A lot of people think that it was written later because there are some terms and some um, assumptions that are much later than when the events actually happened. But the events actually happened somewhere 750 BC-ish, uh, some two, two and a half decades before uh, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Any questions? Okay, let's get caught up a little bit, sort of reminding us. Uh, the city of Nineveh is now our setting. Uh, the last verse 
of chapter two left Jonah in a pile of puke. And uh, writers like to say he went from the beach to the boat to the belly to the beach. <laughs> and so he is vomited up on the beach. There is no reason for us to believe that it's anything but a Mediterranean beach. Uh, some have tried to say because of the, the way the story flows that the uh, whale projectile vomited him all the way to Nineveh. Uh, that there's no, <laughs> there's no reason to believe that. Um, he still had to journey to Nineveh. And the way that the first couple of verses of chapter three sort of unfold, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that God said, I told you to make a journey. And when you get there, you say what I tell you to say. And, and the symmetry between chapter one and chapter three is, is so very alike. The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, arise and go. Chapter three, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go. So God still has a job that needs to be done. And uh, Jonah is the guy he wants to do it. But buried in that mandate, that instruction, is the beautiful clause he told him a second time. And we can't miss that. We, we, we can't miss how incredibly rebellious Jonah had been. How he, he, he not only disobeyed God, he actively disobeyed God. God said, go right, he went left. Uh, I love Alan's chart. Uh, God said, go up to Nineveh, he went down to Tarshish. God said, go east, he went west. God said, go over land, he went over water. It's like it, the, the whole thing sets up to where he says, I, I am, and we don't find out until chapter four, how incredibly rebellious Jonah really was. But we're reminded in all the language that we find the Jonah in us. We, we absolutely find him in us. It's kind of like telling your uh, children or child to do something that they don't want to do. <laughs> well, I, you there, tell them two or three. There's a reason that in ministry world, we call it surrendering to ministry. Is <laughs> because most of us didn't want to do it. We wanted to do something else. And God said, this is what I want you to do. And you say, okay, God, you want me to be in ministry? I'm going to earn an accounting degree. You want me to go be in a church? I'm going to interview for jobs in corporations. You want me to talk to people? I want to do public accounting. <laughs> and, and that's my story. Uh, he says, go east. I want west. And so I think all of us have those episodes in our life where we had a distinct impression that God was telling us to do something. Go speak to somebody. Go uh, minister to somebody. Move to another place. Uh, and for some of us, God put us in the belly of the whale. Uh, some people it's, it's actual, uh, circumstances that they can't get out of. 
for some of us, it was just dead end after dead end after dead end where we realize that we are in conflict with what God is telling us to do. Nothing works. Nothing will, will come into place. Nothing will happen. You eventually say yes to God and you get out of whatever trap you're in. And all of a sudden realize there's a whole wide world out there and that God's ideas are better than ours. Anybody got a story? All of us do. It's just the, the details vary, right? We, we have all come to a place. And, and a lot of times we go right back to the belly of the whale. You know, we go, well, it wasn't pleasant down there, but at least I didn't have to do it. I didn't want to do it. Yeah, but it's sweet. As a parent, I would probably say, now, John, you see what happened to you when I, you didn't obey me. Well, you Jonah know, throughout this story <laughs> is a whole lot more like we were with teenagers. You know, when you say to your son, what were you thinking? And God whispers in your ear, he doesn't have the ability to think. <laughs> how we were with teenagers or how we were as teenagers? Both. <laughs> Yeah, he is precognitive. He is he is pre-human. His little cerebral cortex is still developing. He and Jonah acts like a teenager. God says go left, he goes right. God says go up, he goes down. And and it's like you're saying, Nancy, the parent has the best thing in mind for him, but he is so caught up in his own sin, he can't or won't see it. And if all of us will remember back to that time where we were in a situation that we couldn't get out of, we couldn't find a solution, nothing seemed to work, we got to the end of ourselves. And only then, or maybe you weren't vomited on a beach, but uh, maybe you were. <laughs> so we pick up the story. Remember, the city of Nineveh was significant. Modern day Mosul. It was at the confluence of the Tigris and the Kosa rivers. So it was in a, a the, literally the Fertile Crescent. I mean, literally, it was it was probably some of the best farmland anywhere. Um, not far from Babylon, uh, which was said to be Atlantis on Earth. Right, it, it, the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are one of the the wonders of the world. Um, so we are in history at the tail end of the power that the Assyrians had worldwide. So by this time, the Assyrians had defeated all of the armies in the known world. They had absolute dominance. They had defeated Egypt. Israel wasn't really a factor because Israel was just a baby country. Uh, the, the Persian countries, other than Babylon, Babylon would rise up later on. And some people uh, actually attribute the fall of Assyria to a mega drought that took place sometime after all of this took place. Maybe uh, um or late 16, 600s and, or early 500s BC, uh, somewhere in there, 
there's archaeological evidence that there was a drought that lasted 125 years. And, and they say that that drought spelled the end of the mighty armies of Assyria and allowed smaller countries like Babylon to uh, take over. And we, we know that happened between this story and 587 B.C., because in 722 BC, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. But by 587 BC, the Babylonians were the ones who defeated uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's where the story of Daniel and the deportation of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all the, the exile that all the minor prophets wrote about. So that happened uh, after uh, six, 605 was really when the, the conquest started. So uh, the, the last part of the uh, 600s and the, the first part of the 500s before Christ and remember it goes backwards. That's when the Assyrian Empire gave way to the Babylonians. And so a whole lot happens between Jonah and Daniel in terms of the timeline. Um, and and we are at the very tail end of the Assyrian Empire. Nonetheless, Nineveh is the largest city in the world. It's the the most populous city in the world. It is uh, an extremely spread out city. Uh, Greater Nineveh would not be uh, too different than Greater Atlanta. There there would be a, a 50 mile spread from one side to the other. Um, now, that's a little debatable. In the text, in just a minute, we're going to see that uh, it took Jonah three days to, to uh, cover Nineveh. Now, what that means, we don't know. We don't know if it took him three days to preach or if it was the Persian travel where you arrive one day, you do your business the next day, you leave the next day. That's three days. All we know is that the scripture says it took him three days to deliver the message that God gave him. Now, I'm ahead of myself, so let me back up. The the journey to Nineveh from the Mediterranean shoreline would have taken probably just under a month. Uh, It was about 600 miles uh, as the crow flies. On Sunday, I'll show you a a graphic that if you were to go on modern roads, uh, it's about a 14-hour drive today. Um, So the the distance that needed to be covered, I believe, was part of what God was trying to tell him. Remember that the theme of the book has nothing to do with Jonah. It has nothing to do with a whale. It has nothing to do with Phoenician sailors. It has nothing to do with Ninevites. It is all about the sovereignty of God. God said, I will call you to go where I tell you. I will give you the message that I will tell you. I will will, uh, judge whom I wish to judge. I will forgive whom I wish to forgive. The sovereignty of God is the story of Jonah. All right. Hey, Bob. Good to see you again. 
I love it when you guys light up your videos, then I can see if you're asleep or whatever. <laughs> That's good to see you. All right. So let's dive in. Um, on the first couple of chapters of Jonah, we know that there was instructions given, instructions received. All of chapter two is a poem or a prayer that Jonah uh, uh, pronounced while he was in the belly of the whale or the fish or whatever it was. And uh, then in chapter two, verse 10, we complete the cycle from the beach to the boat, to the belly, to the beach. And then the word of the Lord came a second time. We, we, if this whole book is about the character and sovereignty of God, we cannot miss that he's a God of second chances. We, we cannot miss that, that this is one of those prophecies that, that peaks into the very heart of the New Testament. And it's no accident that, that Jesus said, I am the second Jonah. My word's not his. I, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so I will be in the belly of the earth three days. Jonah saved the sailors. Jesus saved us all. And so the, the, the premonition of grace in the New Testament is all over this ancient poem, this ancient story. Now, I've told you before, to use the word story is not to say it's a fable. It's not to say that it's a children's story like Curious George or the man in the yellow hat. It's it, this, this is a story that is historical. It is arranged by the narrator in a way that it would tell a story. It's like so many of the Jewish stories that Esther is the story that's told at Puri, that, that the story of Passover is, is repeated over and over. And so, so the story of Jonah uh, would have been told over and over and over again. Uh, it, it, it's one of the festivals. Which one, Gary? You got a document? <laughs> I, I missed that day. Uh, <laughs> um, the, it, the, the story of Jonah is read at one of the Jewish festivals, and I have forgotten which one it is. So here we are, a second chance, God giving a prophet a second chance. He said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, that great city. Um, that, that, that would be Yom Kippur, by the way. Yom Kippur. <laughs> Gary uh, had a, 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 a Google-inspired memory <laughs> refresh. So the story of Jonah is told at Yom Kippur. So, so now we've got a God of second chances. Um, part of the, the beauty of Jonah to me is that when you first read Jonah, you go, oh, Jonah was rebellious, but he came around. And then you read chapter four and you go, well, he didn't really. He, it's the old Dennis the Menace cartoon. You remember it? When his mom told him to go sit in the corner and she hollers from the other room, are you sitting in the corner? And he said, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> and and it, for, for Jonah, he was sitting on the outside, but he was standing on the inside. The, the, his heart had not broken for the things that break the heart of God. 
And, and I, I think that's when we understand that this is about the character. God's heart was broken for the Ninevites. He was angry. God was angry at the evil that was being done. But his heart was broken for the people. And that's the God we worship. That's the God of second chances. So Jonah arose and went. That's the direct comparison between chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee. So we, we see the, the subtlety there. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So, so, so don't miss chapter 3, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message that I tell you, or the message that I will tell you. We don't know when he told him the message. We have the eight-word sermon that is given to us in just a couple of verses, where in chapter 3, verse 4, the sermon is given, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't know if Jonah had the whole month to think about his message. Uh, I, I don't know if, if he was on the outskirts of town when God finally told him what to say. All we know is that the, the message is only eight words long in English. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be, okay, there's a word we need to look at. What is the last word of the sermon in your translation? Overturned. What verse? Chapter 3, verse 4. Does anybody's scripture use the word destroyed? Yes. Mine says overthrown. By the way, I thought you said it would take him a month. This says it was in verse three, a three days walk. No, Across Nineveh. Oh, 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 ding, 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 sorry. <laughs> I know other people were unclear about that. That's well, no, that has been that has been a battle through the ages. That that has that has been what suggested some people or, or prompted some people to say that the fish threw him up all the way to Persia. Okay. Thank now, you for making now that would be a hurl of epic proportions. <laughs> I, I don't even want to know what rained down on the people between the Mediterranean and Persia if he actually vomited him that far. <laughs> but there's no reason to believe that. That's not the miracle God wants us to focus on. Mm -hmm. What's the miracle we were supposed to see here? Obedience. The repentance of the Ninevites. <laughs> That's the greatest miracle in the book. That an evil, atheist, ungodly, hostile, nasty people would, as a group, repent. That's the miracle of Jonah. But I'm getting ahead again. You guys keep doing that to me. So Jonah arose. He's still chewing on what the Lord is telling him to do. Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Now, that's the ambiguous one. So the, the word at the end of the sermon can translate either destroyed or overthrown or with a change of heart. Oh. Uh, it, it's the, the, the word that's translated from the Hebrew is a little bit vague. Uh, because when we start wondering about the question of whether or not Jonah is a false prophet, we, we go back to that word and go, 
a false prophet is someone who who predicts something that doesn't come true. But number one, this is never set up to be a prediction. This is set up to be a declaration. And and the word at the end of the sermon, it could mean destroyed. It could mean overthrown. And and certainly within 100 years, uh, Nineveh was overthrown by the Babylonians. Uh, It could mean uh, change of heart. Within 40 days, Nineveh will repent. If repentance wasn't in play, why did God give them 40 days? Why did God give them a warning at all? Why did God send Jonah? And, and that's, it's not for me to question why God did anything. Because remember the, the theme of the book, God is sovereign, which in layman's terms is God is God and Alan is not. <laughs> and so he is, he is not necessarily trying to set up a prediction. He's just saying what God told him to say. So go to Nineveh, say the words that I tell you to say. So he did, and he called out. Now, I believe that as would be the Persian custom, you you remember that we wondered if part of Jonah's fear was that the Assyrians were such nasty people that if he went and started preaching against the city, they'd just slaughter him on the spot. Well, keep in mind that as Jonah approached the city, the, the watchman would have said, there's a guy coming and he's dressed in noble attire. Remember where Jonah lived back in Israel? He lived in the palace. And so there, the, the palace is in between the Mediterranean coast and Nineveh. And that would have survived the fish. Yeah, where would he have gotten this attire? My theory, he went back and got a change of clothes. Oh. I mean, he, if you look at a map, you kind of got to pass back through Samaria okay. in order to get from the Mediterranean coast northeast up to Iraq, Iran, Persia. I wondering about that, about here this guy comes from nowhere. They don't know this guy. They don't know his bona fides or any other thing. What possessed them to say, oh, wow. Here's my theory, okay? Speculation, not in scripture. What you're about to hear is sanctified imagination. <laughs> I think Jonah probably went by Samaria. He got provisions for the journey. Maybe he got a, a couple of camels or an Uber. An Uber. Uh, maybe he got some servants to come with him. Uh, I, just a guess. Uh, the, the, we, we know that, that if Jonah made the journey to Nineveh without any provisions, without any uh, money, without anything, uh, we that doesn't seem like it makes sense, but it makes sense that the way they received him was that a watchman said, hey, there is a procession coming our way, and it's somebody who's not like us. He appears to be noble. He's dressed well. Not real sure about the bleached look of his skin, but, uh, you know, maybe he's an albino. I don't know. <laughs> 
he spent three days in the stomach acid of a fish, so he probably didn't have a lot of melatonin going for him. That's kind of the story I always heard, and that's why it got the Ninevites' attention was that, you know. There's he, a ghost shows up <laughs> on the edge of town. But he did have a month for sure improved. I mean, was, Maybe he got a little bit of Mediterranean sun. Like getting your uh, bathtub. Right. We don't know. But it, it would not have been even the Persian custom to think that a noble procession was an army trying to attack them. And it would have made sense that he would have been received into the city. The, the fact that the king was involved so early in the game... It feels like maybe he went into the city, he met with the city officials, and and they were convinced that what he said was valid. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, he said that, uh, that, that the historical records tell us that the Assyrians had experienced a number of uh, famine and plague and... Uh, uh, natural disasters and uh, uh, earthquakes and eclipses, that there were some supernatural kinds of uh, signs that they were trying to unpack. And so maybe they were more receptive to a message about a God who was kind of about to wreak further havoc. They said, we, we've, already, we've already had the run of, we, we, we've already had the the trailer of the movie, and and now we're about to have the main show. We better listen to what this guy has. And, and God does that, right? Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw men to me. If, 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 let, how will they hear unless there's a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of them that take, say, glad tidings of good things. That, 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 that God prepares hearts ahead of the message. The, the message is not dependent on the messenger. He will he will have his message out. Oh, question. Hey, Bob. Yes, well, the thing that stands out to me, and this has to do with what you're talking about here, is um, the Ninevites believed God. <clears throat> that, that's before the king believed God. So right. the Ninevites from the you know, lowest to the highest, they believed God. It didn't say they believe Jonah. So that's why I think, I mean, I don't know how the Holy Spirit works. I know the Holy Spirit worked to a certain degree in certain people in the Old Testament. But it seems pretty fishy that these heathen people would, would believe God. That, that really stands out to me. Look, look at the word they use for God. Uh, you remember on, on Sunday we we said that if the if the English word in your Bible is uppercase L O R D, then it's Yahweh. It's the personal God. If it's spelled capital G O D, it's usually Elohim, which is sort of the. Uh, uh, the the majestic transcendent unapproachable God uh, and and the Ninevites would have believed that Bob because they they had gods little G they had a bunch of them and now here's this guy I, I'm sure Jonah gave him context I, I'm, I'm sure he had to explain who he was and where he was from and 
and, and he told the, the, the Phoenician sailors, he said, I'm a Hebrew. I, I'm, I'm one of the covenant people of God with a big G. And so I, I agree with you, Bob. I think they were right to believe. They, they wanted an explanation for what he was saying to them. And if Keller's right, an explanation for the, the uh, supernatural events that they had witnessed, plagues, eclipses, earthquakes. So uh, I, I, I believe with all my heart that we, we see the gospel unfolding here. We, we see that the, the messenger, uh, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the mouth, one confesses. With the heart, one believes. There is this, this the, the, you, Paul closes the loop for us and says what, what happened with Jonah, and that's why we can't just leave it as a children's story. The, the structure is important and the the way the message unfolded is important, and the interaction between God and the messenger is important. And it, it, it gets back to us. He wants us to see the sovereignty of God in this book and how it relates to us when we're in the whale, when we're on the beach, when we're in Nineveh. You know, all of the symbols are so approachable. He wants us to see that what he's telling Jonah is what he's telling us. You know, it's really comforting to know that if we're on the wrong path, he's going to do something to stop us. He's going to drastically <laughs> intervene and get us back on the right path, which is, is good to know that he's not going to let us just wander the wrong way forever. Yep. He, God, God, like what I found in my life, he will always provide you. I would just say this nicely. He'll always provide. <laughs> and you, you know, you need to trust God, take you over the obstacle or you veer. And you can keep veering and veering and veering and get further away. And ultimately, he's right there. You know, it's kind of like, you know, Jonah ran the other way. And he stayed away. You just get deeper and deeper into the maze. Mm -hmm. you, you get deeper and deeper into the, the hall of dead-end hallways. And, and, and he's standing at the way to the light. But we just get, and we all do it. We've had, uh, the one writer said that uh, chapter three is the fifth episode in the story of Jonah that's in the book. And I, and I can see it. You know, we we start with the uh, uh, God shows up and then we run and then the, the boat and then the beach. And now the, so, so we have episodes in our lives where, as Richard said, we, we have the opportunity to walk towards the place that God is telling us to go. Why is it that we, well, it's back to the teenager. What were you thinking? I am a sinful, I am a sinful carnal man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I don't have the ability to think as a spiritual man, unless I give my spiritual mind to God. And, and when we repent, it unlocks what God wants to do in our lives. Okay, I'm ahead again. Um, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Great, great catch, Bob. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the, the, the sequence seems to be 
God met with the city officials, and like most of the cultural elite, they said, oh, what a nice little man. What a, well, we need some entertainment around here. Let's let him go in the streets and do what he said he's got to do. And then something funny happened. The, the people began to believe. The people began to embrace him. The, the leaders had already heard the message. They weren't going to let him in town without knowing what he was about. You know, there, there's always, there's 120,000 people in this town. And, and there's always an undercurrent of, of the haves and the have-nots. And you, you know, you don't want the, the masses to feel like they've got power. So they would have vetted his message. And they were going, well, how much harm can he really do? And then it started getting traction, right? The, the revival broke out in Nineveh. Now, we, we'll, we'll talk in a minute about whether the revival was sincere. We, we, we don't know. We, we know that it didn't last. But, but we are never the ones to say that, that someone's heart, we, we're not the ones that judge hearts. God does. And so we know that as a people group, the Ninevites never sacrificed to Yahweh. They never established a covenant with him. They never put away their idols. They, they never became covenant people. They never got circumcised. We, we, don't, we, we, we don't have any record of any of that taking place. So we don't have any reason to believe that this revival was anything but a, uh, an acknowledgement that, God is, that the God that Jonah proclaimed was more powerful than their God. And and they turned to him. They believed God. One translation, though the, the actual the translation of the Hebrew says they believed in God, but the context of that is not such that they believed in him as a covenant God. They believed God. They they believed what Jonah told them about God. All right. So then, verse six. The word reached the king. And he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth. Don't overthink that. It's a sign of repentance. Sat in ashes. Don't overthink that either. It's a, sad, a sign of repentance. It's sort of a universal sign of repentance. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So covered with ashes, it's... It's a sign of humility. Sackcloth is basically a, we would say, put on a burlap sack with armholes. Uh, it was meant to strip away any prestige in the clothing. The, any, any finery was reduced to a sack. Um, so the king issued the proclamation published throughout Nineveh. So that might have taken three days, 120,000 people. It takes a while for the word to get out. By the decree of the king, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Now, as far as he knew, this needed to go on for 40 days. As far as he knew, he was proclaiming a fast for 40 days. Don't let anybody... Let's let's show a sign of repentance. We we don't have a reason to believe this is hyperbole or symbolism, because he said, "Don't don't let any herd, flock, man, beast. 
Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That had to look pretty silly. All the sheep wearing sacks. All the cows wearing sacks. That's what he said. Let and 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 this is really interesting. Look at the migration in chapter uh, three, verse eight. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There's an implication there that the the Ninevites were even being violent to one another. It would be like reading the newspaper in Atlanta first thing in the morning, and there's another killing. There's another act of violence. There's another assault. There's another arson. There's another something. Uh, and, and the king said, enough. We have got to quit acting like this. Now, everybody give me some slack for a minute. There are some writers that say that the that that theme number one A, if theme one is the sovereignty of God, theme one A is social justice. Theme one A is we've got to stop treating each other this way. We've got to stop with the racism. We've got to stop with the uh, people living in poverty. We've got to stop with the violence towards uh, pre-born. We've got to stop with the violence. Now, because Jonah didn't offer repentance, it was implied. And because uh, Jonah didn't say become covenant people, the, the theme of social justice kind of rises even higher when he says one of the way that the people of God act like the people of God is that they stop acting like Ninevites. And, and if there's a message for us corporately, it's in there somewhere that we as followers of Christ have got to speak up against the injustices that are going on in our culture. We, we, we can't just think it's not going to get on us. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't impact us. We have to be aware that the gospel is to love God and to love people and to make disciples and to make a difference. And part of the way we make a difference is that theme one is the sovereignty of God. Theme 1A is the way we treat each other. Love God, love people. Okay, I'm... I'm only going to preach that on Wednesday night. I'm not going to preach it on Sunday morning because there's other stuff I want to talk about. Do we, uh, do we know who the king was that he, uh, no. We don't even think he was a real king. Skip asked, do we know who the king was? Well, Nineveh was not the capital city of Assyria. It was just big old honking town. Um, there's, there's nothing to believe that there was royalty there. So basically he was a, a city official. He was like the mayor. All right. So verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said said he would do to them 
Another interesting play on words. The word evil that's in that verse and the word disaster that's in that verse, they come from the same Hebrew root. So he said, you relented from your evil and I relented from the evil I intended for you. You relented from your disastrous behavior. I relented from my plan to destroy you, to overturn you, to, uh, I, I, I moved instead that your hearts would be transformed. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So that brings us to the question. Was Jonah a false prophet? Because God changed his mind. But somebody look up Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Jeremiah 18 is when God gives Jeremiah a vision of the potter. Let's look at what he said to Jeremiah. Verses 7 and 8. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Somebody read that. Judy, you got it? Judy Lucius? Sure. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Doesn't appear like Jonah was a false prophet at all. Because what is theme one? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We, it is not up to us to say, and that's what chapter four is about. I knew you would relent. I knew you, you're, you're, you, I walked a month to tell these people you were going to destroy them and you did it. And the beauty of that, even in his complaining, Jonah said, I knew that the character of God is love. I knew that the character of God desired that all men would repent and none would perish, as Peter said it in Acts chapter 7, maybe. 10, 4. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Bob. I see a, a not an exact parallel, but enough of a parallel with what happened in, um, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah's time. God the uh, Babylonians were come to, coming to get them, way outnumbered. And uh, he said, now look, I'm going to give you a way out. This is what God said. He said, uh, you surrender to them and you'll be okay. Well, they, choose, they chose not to believe the word of, the, of God. Now, we can't rerun history, but let's say they did. Say they did surrender to the Babylonians you know, we don't know what God would have had them do, but they didn't. But here the Ninevites got the word of God. They surrendered to him as much as they could, and, and God um, came through for them. And God came through in a different way with uh, the, the people from Jerusalem because they didn't obey him. 
Interestingly enough, the repentance apparently didn't last, and Jonah's prophecy actually came true 200 years later. But I agree with you, Bob. I, I Other than my fascination with the whole event called the exile, and uh, I don't know, I could preach three, four years on all of the books that touch this event called the exile. And, and, and sometimes we forget that the Passover was a huge event in Exodus. In the, in the early stages of the nation of Israel, the Passover was huge. But what has defined most of Jewish thinking is not the Passover, but the exile. And, and as you say, Bob, in 587 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. They deported everyone who had brains or beauty or resources. They left the dregs of society behind, the prisoners, the sick, the diseased. They left them behind and, and actually imported a few Babylonians who were sick and incarcerated and diseased. And the hope was that the, 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 the defective people would breed with other defective people and you would raise up a nation of idiots who would never be able to rise against the kingdom. Uh, but what happened is that God preserved the remnants and he preserved it through Daniel in the exile and he preserved it through the largely the minor prophets back in Israel and Judah and throughout the exile these these minor prophets were proclaiming the word of God so you want the books that touch the exile Amos Jonah uh, Micah uh, Hosea, uh, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, all of those surround the story of the exile. And so for these 70 years, and a lot of people would say Revelation touches on it too, because the prophecy of Daniel, the prophecy of Jeremiah was, you remember the famous verse that everybody loves in Jeremiah? I'm just going to preach it, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good go. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Everybody has a placard of it on your refrigerator. Uh, the, know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your uh, prosperity and not for your calamity. Plans to give you a future and a hope. I preached a whole sermon one time on, on the verse right before that. When God said, yet 70 years will be for Babylon. And then I will, and the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. So Jeremiah 29, 10, it's the bad news before the good news, but, but we only remember the good news. So the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. But he said, oh, going to be 70 years in the making. And it was almost exactly 70 years between 587 when the exile began and when the exiles returned to begin to build the temple. So when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the end of Jeremiah, you are post-exilic by then. 
and the exiles were beginning to return. Nehemiah talks about rebuilding the temple, uh, uh, the city walls, and Ezra talks about rebuilding the temple and the, the presence of God. Ezra is all about reading the word. So it, it's a fascinating period of history, but where we are in Jonah is a hundred years before that, 150 years before that. The, the, it's, it's about 30 years before the Northern Kingdom falls. It's about 150 years before the Southern Kingdom falls, triggering the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all of the exiles. Yeah, Skip. Sorry, I I got to preach it. So the Babylonians first destroyed Syria, Assyria, then just went on to that is correct. Six twelve, and then five eighty seven, Judah. Correct. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. The Assyrians destroyed Samaria. And part of the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was that during the exile, the people of the northern kingdom, particularly the Samarians, willingly intermarried with the invading armies for self-preservation. And they were considered to be half-breeds because they had not kept the Jewish bloodline pure. And so all the way into the New Testament, we have the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that dates all the way back to the exile. But Alan, where the reverie meets the road for us is this saying, God can do anything he wants to, but we can't influence what he does. If we do what he tells us to do, he, he allows us to participate. He he allows us to be messengers and proclaimers and healers. But he changed his mind. So if we change. Did he? God is omniscient. So God doesn't change his mind. He just tells somebody something. Okay, let's chase that down. Romans 3.23 says what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. That is a proclamation. All have sinned. All are sentenced to death. Romans 5.8 says what? But God... Works all things to good. Demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the Ninevites were under the sentence of death. But God, did he change his mind? Or, or did man wake up to his grace? I think man woke up to his grace. I... You're online. You can bail me out here, but that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, That that God knew, meant, intended. It is not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And in our world today, he loves the most vile person you can imagine is not out of the reach of the love of God. Now, do they repent? Yeah. I mean, there's a visceral and very demonstrative repentance that took place. They put sacks on the sheep <laughs> and, and, and they were as a, as a nation saying, we're sorry, whoever this God is, we don't want him to be mad at us anymore. Do you think they were superstitious? Oh, of course they were. So, so were the Jews. Well, Everybody in that world was superstitious. You think superstition over an actual heart. Yeah. Uh, another, another lesson for another day. I don't think superstition gave way until the Renaissance. You know, if I do this, God's going to be mad at me. If I do this, the crops won't grow. If I do this, my kids will be deformed. If I do this, and, and we have allowed superstition to drive a lot of our faith even today. Yeah. I always like when, when Christ came, you know, that's when he cares in the disciples about, you know, you want a sign. You know, yeah. the superstitions were just so, you know, forever abundantly. They're always looking for, oh, show me something, you know. Herod. When Jesus was standing before him, show me a sign. It's exactly right. Superstitious. You look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. Uh, I mean, that in and of itself implies that the repentance was real, that God wasn't tricked by a fake repentance. Yeah, he knows hearts. And, then, and we all have the same experience that uh, when we have a... Um, a spiritual moment when we have a, a revival in our heart, we're, we're all on fire for God. We're only playing Christian music in the car <laughs> and then life happens. And it's, it's just, this story is so us, the Jonah and all of us. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess um, could go another semester, but then I'd have to give you grades. <laughs> Any questions before we uh, go? All right. This is not the last night, is it? No, next week. Oh, you said another semester. We, I was like, this is no, the last we got to do uh, chapter four. And I think I can do chapter four in one week. But it should it, be two more weeks. Yeah, yeah but uh, the Sunday after the last Wednesday is in July. Mm -hmm. And so Robert would have to show up to do Wednesday night Bible study. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. Maybe I'll grab his text and we'll just have a Bible study. Hang in there. Hang in there. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Gary, you can, you can do the last Bible study. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs>